Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 to 7. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And the second reading is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to chapter 3, verses 12. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God, honour the king. Slaves, submit yourself to your master with all respect, not only to those that are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering, because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you as an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to, those, to, to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewellery and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands. Like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her master, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of the Lord. 
Well, good morning, and a nice and uh, simple, non-controversial passage uh, for the the grand final and daylight savings weekend. So, this is this is obviously I thought this through very very well. Uh, we are in one Peter, and it's been uh, a wonderful ride so far. We have a uh, learnt all sorts of things about how to be uh, live as aliens and strangers in a land that largely does not follow God or know God. Uh, it's a brilliant book for our times. Um, and as we move into this passage, what Peter's doing is he's, he's going from a big picture of you've been born again to new birth with a living hope, a big picture. You've been chosen by God. And yet now zooming in, 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 into how does that work out in the actual everyday stuff of life? Thank you, Kirsten. So before we jump into the passage, let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank you uh, that you uh, have not left us here alone, but by uh, your spirit and through your word, we are able to live lives that honor you in all areas and all spheres of life. Help us now, Lord, uh, to be inspired, motivated, and empowered uh, to live those sorts of lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, now, last week we talked about um, uh, how... Uh, we should live good lives among, uh, in, in the world so that ultimately we might be a witness and example of the gospel um, to all those who see us and come into contact with us. Uh, we looked at chapter 2, verse 12, which says, Live such good lives among the pagans that although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So in other words, our calling is to be public Christians, actually not to do um, what is pretty commonly thought of as the right thing to do, which is to keep religion and faith into the private sphere, just what you do in your own home, but actually to live all of life in a way which glorifies God and speaks of Him. Uh, and Peter now comes into this new section, asks a really important um, question, that is, how do you live as a Christian witness when you often find yourselves under the power of other people. How do you live as a Christian witness under the power of other people? And Peter's convinced that the most faithful and godly way to live in situations where there are huge power imbalances and at the same time to be a gospel witness to those people who have the power is through lifestyles of humble submission. Humble submission. Now, submission, of course, is a loaded word for us, right? Uh, in our culture, so we can't hear the word submit or submission without thinking of forced servitude or having your rights forcibly taken away. So with that in mind, we have to be a bit careful about how we use this word. Uh, but submission shouldn't be a dirty word for Christians um, because Peter actually will unwrap this word to show that there is glory in it that should and must be redeemed. Submission is actually at the very heart of the Christian gospel. Why? Well, because Jesus Christ submitted himself to the Father to become human, uh, to live a perfect life, to die a, a shameful death. He said, my, not my will be done, but yours. He said that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. 
And as Peter will illustrate in our passage, Jesus even submitted himself to cruel injustice, to power imbalances for our sakes. The gospel actually reshapes, reforms, renews the idea of submission to be something not shameful, but glorious. Now, there's all sorts of caveats to that, and we'll come to that as we go. Uh, but for now, Peter, uh, with, with this in the background of Peter's mind, this gospel truth, Peter shows how humble submission becomes vitally important in three spheres of life. Now, in this passage, each one is aimed at a particular historical context in the first century. So what I'll do is we'll, we'll look at the context and we'll try and draw out um, some principles for our modern world. So the spheres are the civic sphere, so of government, politics, being citizens. The vocational sphere, the, the, way, the, the things that we do in our careers and um, as students or um, that sort of thing. And the domestic sphere, the household, marriage, family. So first, let's jump into the civic sphere. And if you're following along, let's look at verses uh, 13 to 14. Peter writes, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Now, we've already covered in this series that one of the most uh, common things in Asia Minor where Peter writes um, was the imperial cult or the emperor cult. What that meant was it was really common for most people to participate in daily worship of the Roman emperor as a god. That was just part of the religious experience of the day. Uh, one of the Roman governors at the time actually sent a letter to the emperor complaining about these people called the Christians. Uh, these Christians, he was kind of uh, flummoxed by because they refused to worship the emperor as a god. He couldn't understand it. Even if, and he did, torture some of them, they still flatly refused uh, to bow down before the emperor's statue. He couldn't understand why that would be the case. But of course we understand, uh, because we know the scriptures, we know that Christians see their ultimate allegiance uh, to God alone. And to worship any human as a god would be an act of spiritual treason. But Peter sees another side to this tale as well, because in refusing to see the emperor as divine, the Christians might see him instead and his government as people to be hated, as people to be rebelled against, to speak badly of, to undermine. And they might think, well, the government is making life hard for us, so let's make life hard for the government. You know? But instead of suggesting to, them, to these people, well, stick it to the man, instead, Peter writes really controversially, for the Lord's sake, submit to every human authority, not just to the emperor, but to his local government, their governors and appointed officials. So he might go, submit, seriously? Submit to an evil emperor? Have you not seen Star Wars? An evil emperor is every opportunity to form a rebellion. But no, Peter is seeing things from a bigger point of view. He says, you think the emperor is a curse for you. Oh, and that may be right. But you know what? He is also a blessing, a gift for you from God. 
How's that? Well, God is king over earthly kings. Absolutely. Amen. But God also allows human rulers to rule for the good of the world. He does it so that order, justice, and stability can be maintained. Now, someone will say, hang on. Uh, That might be true, but aren't we citizens of a different kingdom? Don't we have a a different law to follow? Doesn't God's law trump everything else? And Peter's response in verse 16 is, yes, absolutely. We, We are free. We're spiritually free. In fact, Peter says, remember, you must live as God's slaves. That means that, well, God is our heavenly Lord who made us, who gave us life and has freed us spiritually from slavery to sin and death. And that means uh, that God has won our allegiance. We are slaves of God. That's a bit uncomfortable to hear as modern uh, Western people. But God says, no, you you are not yourselves. You are owned by me. But belonging to God gives true freedom because he doesn't oppressively crush us. He loves us as his children, as a father does. Being slaves to God is actually real freedom to live as we should, which always brings human flourishing. So if if we're to live as slaves to God, what does that mean for um, a life in the civic world? Well, it means that we must respect God's design for life. And if God has put government in place for our good, then submitting to that government honors God. So that's the historical context, but what does that look like for us? Because we don't live in an empire. We live in a democracy. Our country values equality and and democratic freedoms, equality, law. And yet... We still see submission to authorities as something really challenging, don't we? Especially in Australia. Because in Australia, we love being the underdog. And we love sticking it to the man. We love having a go at those in charge. We're all about tall poppy syndrome, making sure they're cut down to size. We call our politicians by their first names. (laughs) Malcolm. (laughs) Australian culture has a, a deep suspicion of authority. And so this is a challenge for us. So Christian submission goes against the grain of our culture because honoring God means honoring those who are in authority over us. And too often, I think, I've heard Christians speak really disparagingly about those who have the rule over us, our leaders and our politicians. And Peter would say, that's that's just not on for a Christian. We should pray for our leaders, not put them down. We should speak well of them and think well of them. And we should pray that God would bless them, that he would help them govern well, and ultimately that they might become Christians, that they might come to know the true king of the world. Submission also means that uh, we should aim to live as model citizens, obeying and respecting the law of the land wherever we are, and To be honest, that's really hard sometimes because that means even respecting the role of, you know, travel cops and parking inspectors and other people who really make life hard for us sometimes. But they are God's gift to us. In fact, next time you get a parking fine, say that to the guy. Say, you know what? You're God's gift to me. He'll just freak out. It'd be great. Now, many of you are asking, well, well, what about when the government does something that's wrong? 
What about when, he, when the government does something that's, that's not just or against God's law? Well, how do we, what do we do then? Well, we're, we're blessed to live in a democracy, so we have several avenues for how to, uh, to um, exercise our rights, to have a voice, and yet do it respectfully. We can participate in public debate. We can, we can vote often and early and wisely. And we can even protest. Now, the last one is tricky, I think, protesting, because protesting, as we've seen, can really get out of hand. It can easily be done with a lack of respect. So it's wise for us to look for good examples of how to protest in the Christian way. And one uh, really stuck out for me over the last few years. Uh, you might remember this guy. This is uh, Tree Nguyen. Uh, and he's a minister in Melbourne, Brunswick um, Baptist Church. Now, a few years ago, you might remember, he uh, built himself a little model boat. Um, and the boat is a replica of the boat that brought him and his family to Australia from Vietnam in 1982. And he painted thank you on the side, and he decided he was going to walk from Melbourne to Canberra. Presumably it took him a long time, a few rest stops along the way. Now, after why he did it, he simply said, well, for me, it's about appreciation. I want to say thank you to Parliament for giving the gift of refuge to me and my family. Now, we might say, oh, how is that a protest? <laughs> But actually it is, and it's a powerful one, but it's also a respectful one. See, it acknowledges that the government is God's gift and has done right. It did right to welcome Tree and his family to our shores all those decades ago. But it also, in the same way, subversively, poses a challenge and a reminder that our country and our government could, should continue to enhance our capacity for, for welcome. For generosity. I think it's a great example of what this looks like for a Christian. But what about the worst case scenario? What about when the government commands us to do something that's against God's laws? Well, yes, God's law does trump human laws. And there have been times through history where Christians have had to respectfully disobey. Uh, we went through Daniel early in the year, and we saw an example of that um, in Daniel 6, when, when uh, Daniel still prayed to God, even though he was commanded to only pray uh, to the Babylonian emperor. And he took the lion's den as a result. Now, in modern-day Australia, these situations are pretty rare. And when it happens, when, uh, even identifying them uh, requires a lot of godly wisdom. But we can also face them knowing that God, our King, gives us courage to make hard, unpopular, and even sometimes dangerous decisions. So that's the, the civic sphere. Now we start zooming in uh, to the vocational sphere. And by that I mean that the, what we spend most of our days doing. And Peter looks at this particular part of the ancient workforce, the slaves. Now, slavery in the first century was a daily reality. It wasn't the same as the slavery we think of, as in um, uh, slavery in the United States, North America, that sort of thing. It's not quite the same as that. Uh, for example, um, slaves in those days could buy their own freedom. Uh, they were often treated quite well. They are often quite highly educated. Sometimes they were paid, um, and, they, and it wasn't racially motivated. So it's a different thing, and we need to understand that. But even so, it's still horrible. Slavery in all its forms is always a horrible and unjust mistreatment 
of a human being. Now, in no way does Peter condone slavery here. You notice that. And in fact, it would, later on, Christians armed with verses like this and others would campaign for the abolition of slavery. They'll be at the forefront of that movement. But Peter was writing to Christians uh, living in a time when slavery was part of the fabric of society. It was a reality. And Peter assumes, as he writes to Asia Minor, some of the Christians who are reading his letters are slaves themselves. So they need to know how to act. How do, how do they deal with this situation that they find themselves in? Of course, for slaves, the gospel comes as good news. Because in Christ, social status no longer determines who's in or who's out, who's blessed and who's cursed, because both slave and free can now freely access the offer of salvation. And this gives incredible hope. But it doesn't buy social freedom. So how should you live as a Christian if you're a slave and you're under oppression? Should you rebel? Should you escape? Should you undermine your masters? No. Peter again says, humbly submit. Verse 18. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. So just so all Christians were to submit to God, so slaves were to show respect to their masters, and not just the good ones, even those who acted badly. If the Christian attitude for, to enemies is to love and pray for them, as Jesus said, then that has to extend, by, but logically extend, even to masters, even to slave owners. And this is actually an even more radical response than angry rebellion and violence. Uh, Dennis Edwards makes a really good point about this passage. Uh, he points out that Peter's purpose here is to show what Christ-like behavior looks like even in the worst of situations. And there surely is not much worse than this. And Peter says, yes, you might suffer, yes, but better to suffer for what is right than to escape suffering by doing what is wrong? Now, I, I think Peter writing this must have had a great deal of sympathy for his readers. And he knew that this would be a tough pill to swallow. And so I think that's why he now gives this incredible uh, few verses of gospel motivation. He gives them Jesus to help them in this situation. From verse 21, he says, To this you are called, because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Peter's drawing on the richness of Isaiah 53, which we heard read before. And he says to slaves, you may well suffer, but you do not suffer alone. Jesus himself has gone before you. He has already trod this path. His story is now where you can find power and resources to do the impossible. 
to give honor and respect to those who don't deserve it. And by doing so, be a witness to him who died for a world who did not deserve him. So how does this apply today? Now, this becomes a bit tricky, doesn't it? Because uh, as, um, as we saw, like, this is a completely different social situation that we find ourselves in. But last Sunday, we affirmed our Freedom Sunday, where we uh, heard from the front here that uh, slavery is still in existence in this world. And so we plead with God to bring an end to something so wicked. And fortunately, we have all sorts of opportunities to join the cry to see slavery put to an end in all its forms. But as for us here today, fairly unlikely that we're going to become physical slaves anytime soon. But that's not to say that we won't find ourselves in situations that are incredibly unfair. That's not to say that as we uh, follow our vocations as students or workers or any other, that we won't find ourselves in situations when there's people above us who abuse their power and their authority that they have over us. And our culture has very particular views on how to handle those types of situations. Normally, again, they'll say, well, you know, stick it to the man, get angry, get even, grumble and complain, undermine, rebel. That's the Aussie way to do things, right? But strangely enough, these sorts of responses generally only make things worse, not better. It either causes you so much friction uh, in, your, in your workplace or in your vocation that the life becomes intolerable, or it fuels you with resentment and anger towards the person who has mistreated you. So Peter's advice is pretty counterintuitive uh, and not easy to do, but actually remarkably effective. He says that humble submission that follows in Christ's example has a way of dispersing anger in your own heart and giving you a peace and a calm to endure the situation. Now, it's not to say that it's never appropriate to report someone who's acting really badly, and it's good that we have the opportunity to do that. But even then, the motive is not just so that we can escape from the situation, but ultimately for the good of that person so that they might be challenged and disciplined and restored. Chances are God will actually give you all sorts of opportunities in your everyday life, if he's not already doing it at the moment, to submit to those in power over you. Peter shows that these are actually chances for each of us to reveal the very heart of the gospel. And if we truly believe that same gospel, we can tap into a power to do good to those who do not do good to us. So we've seen the civic sphere, now into the vocational, and now finally Peter zooms in even further to the domestic sphere. Family and marriage. Now in the first century, uh, men ruled the roost. Pretty much for sure. Men rule the roost in home, in society, in government. So it's not surprising, actually, that as Christianity grew, a large proportion of converts were women, probably much more than men. And the gospel makes, because the gospel makes some audacious claims about gender. 
Jesus makes it clear that men and women have equal value and worth and status before God. Equal access to salvation, equal access to an inheritance as children of God. And this was a huge religious breakthrough for the time. But it posed a big problem. Uh, Women were becoming Christians really, really quickly. But their husbands, the men, were not becoming Christians necessarily um, at the same time. This might not seem so bad. We say, well, what's the problem? Well, it becomes a problem when we realize uh, that in a first century family, the wife and the children and anyone else part of the household followed the husband's lead when it came to religion. His gods were their gods. So imagine the, the consternation, the conflict that would be caused by a wife converting to Christianity and saying, I'm going to worship God, Yahweh, Jesus, and I'm not going to follow your gods. All sorts of problems were likely to um, start happening. So the wives found themselves stuck between a rock and a hard place. Uh, if they stayed at home, they, they might suffer their husband's wrath for refusing to worship his gods. But if they ran away, they'd suffer all sorts of social disgrace from being without a husband, without a home. Now, Peter's solution then is controversial. Then as it is now. And he says, extend the same principle in this situation. He says, wives, in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Okay, so straight up, let's deal with the elephant in the room here. Uh, These verses have sometimes been used to advocate for women staying in abusive relationships and not getting help and allowing it to continue. And that is a horrible misreading of this passage, a horrible twisting of it. Peter is writing to women who had no choice in the matter, literally no choice. But we thank God that we live in a world, in a society, where women do have a choice where women can and should reach out and seek help for their own good, but also for the good of their husbands. And yet Peter does still write, in the same way, submit. Now, we'll come back to how to apply this in, the modern, in modern times, but for now, in those days, um, Peter's saying, have the same attitude as the slaves that I've already talked about had. What does that mean? Does that mean that he's saying wives act like slaves? Well, no. What he's saying is that wives and slaves have in common something really important. Not position, but attitude. They each have to bear up sometimes under the abuse of power. And the way to do that is to take their cues from Jesus. That's what they have in common. They have Jesus in common. But Peter's command is more subversive than we think because in those days, a woman submitted to her husband out of obligation. It was just how society works, what was expected from her. But Peter says to wives, submit to your husband, not out of obligation, but because you choose to. Because you choose to. Your new life in Christ gives you the freedom to respect and honor your husband without feeling any resentment towards him. 
And in fact, Peter's expectation is that there is such power in this that their husbands may well be one to Christ. For women who could not assume in those days to instruct their husbands in anything, their actions could be powerfully persuasive. So he says to the wives, this is how you should act. And this will might well bring your husband to the Lord. Respect him and his authority as much as you are able. But Peter isn't going to give the husbands a free pass either. Uh, in verse 7, he says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. He again used this phrase, in the same way. You've noticed the repetition, in the same way, in the same way. And now he's speaking to husbands, those who had the most power. He leaves them last, which I like. And he says, do you know what? Take your cues from your wives and from the slaves. It's amazing that he completely upends the social order. Where do you take your cues from? Not from other men, but from those who are actually in weaker positions than you are. Imitate their devotion to God and respect of others. As much as the slaves and the wives are able to submit, then you should give your wives the highest honor and consideration. He uses the term weaker partner, which is a tricky one for us to understand, but it probably means literally physically weaker and possibly also weaker in terms of social standing. And maybe even weaker in faith, as in the, the wife in this case isn't a Christian yet, and so has weaker, is weaker in that way. In any case, since women were certainly in the weaker position, husbands had all the more responsibility to ensure that they gave their wives an environment in which they could flourish as people loved by God. Now again, as we move from modern to uh, ancient to modern, uh, we find ourselves in a very different context. Uh, the dy- dynamics of male-female relationships have changed drastically in our world. We value equality between the genders, even if it ne- isn't necessarily acted out all the time. And because our worlds are so different, we can't just transplant Peter's words and make them into kind of a manual for marriage in our day and age. But there's also God's word to us, which is truth and is timeless. And so we have to understand, well, how do we apply it? Well, I think we can by finding, looking at the principle behind what Peter's saying to these marriages. Marriage of any sort will inevitably bring all sorts of power imbalance, all sorts of disputes, all sorts of conflict. There are all manner of opportunities in marriage for power to be abused by men and by women in different ways. And the natural response to this in many relationships is escalation. You did this, so I'll top it, and then that gets topped, and that gets topped, and escalate, and escalate, and escalate. Repaying like with like. And to be honest, I feel this all the time in my own marriage. When Jackie and I get into an argument, so often I feel the, the urge to repay like for like. And if she says something, and then I want to get my own back, and then so on and so forth, and we, and we fight and we fight. Hurtful comment for hurtful comment. And what's happening in that moment for us is that we're forgetting the gospel. We're f- forgetting 
the truth that Christ came not to be served, but to serve. And instead of finding opportunity to submit and honor the other, we look to defend our own egos and statuses. and We try and get the upper hand. But of course, the heat dies down, as it always does. And we rein in our emotions. And then, in that moment, we start to remember what we're called to. And we ask for forgiveness and we seek reconciliation. And that's a wonderful and a beautiful thing. But one thing hasn't changed from Peter's days to ours, and, and that's that there's all sorts of opportunities in every marriage, every relationship, not even just marriages, to respect, honor, and submit to each other. Another thing hasn't changed, and that's that oftentimes uh, we find marriages where one is a Christian and one is not. It's still fairly common, even though other places in the New Testament still suggest that maybe it's not the wisest thing. But God does love marriage of all, you know, all sorts, between all sorts of people, according to his rules and his law. And so he provides resources for dealing with all sorts of situations. And Peter's words give a spouse great hope that by living out the gospel, they might have a wonderful impact upon their spouse, their husband or their wife, to change their hearts and bring them to God. So, we've seen this idea of submission, we've seen that the glory in it has worked out in, uh, in the civic sphere, in the vocational sphere, in the domestic sphere. And finally, we see at the end of the passage here that Paul's Christian, Paul, uh, Peter's uh, hope for all his readers is that they will submit to each other, being of the same mind, loving one another, even though it's one of the hardest truths to live out. But he gives us such great gospel power to do it, even though it would, because it would be impossible otherwise. Our world says that the only thing to be found in submission is shame and weakness. But God says, assures us that in weakness is found true strength and new power. God loves to use what is weak in the world to shame the powerful, what is shameful in the world to shame the strong. Submission, honor, respect, humility, all these things are imbued with the potential to turn miserable situations into transformative events. But only when they're done in service to the one who transformed the greatest weakness into the greatest power. Jesus left the power and glory of heaven to submit to the injustice and shame of the cross, so that in him, friends, we might be spiritually free to be slaves of God, to follow in his footsteps and to find in Christ a new power to live lives of humble and respectful submission to others. It would be wonderful if we lived that kind of life as a church, as individuals, in all the everyday stuff of life. So let's pray now that God will help us to do that. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that Christ came uh, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, so that we might be indeed ransomed from slavery to sin and death. To no longer be slaves of sin, but slaves of God. And we know that gives us a new freedom to live life as we ought in a way that honors you 
and glorifies your holy name. Help us now, Lord, for that uh, truth to seep down into the cracks and crevices of each day as we deal with all sorts of imbalances of power, all sorts of opportunities, Lord, to show and reveal your gospel as countercultural and controversial as it is. Lord, I pray that as we do, we would see all sorts of fruit that we might become so thankful to you for helping us to, uh, for something like this to have such a great impact. May we share that with others and may we as a community really celebrate that. In Jesus' name, we praise things. Amen.